Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma O'Doher and Tom Breeze. Episode 13, Trauma-Informed Practice with Dr Anne Hodgson. Hello and welcome back to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching and we've got a guest with us who joined us for the first time last season and um, we've been lucky enough to get her back for another episode. Dr Anne Hodgson, how are you doing? I'm okay, thank you. Welcome back to our podcast. I must be crazy. (laughs) It's a good sign when they come back, it means we must be nice. And we had a cracking episode from you last season, looking at additional learning needs, practice, policy, legislation. It went down really well. We crammed a lot in. We did. We We talked, we ranged far and wide. I've got a funny feeling that this episode might do the same. So we're going to sort of set the landscape first. You're here to talk about trauma-informed practice, trauma-informed schools. But before we do that, I think we need to sort of talk about the wider landscape. Um, We hear a lot now about adverse childhood experiences, ACEs. You know quite a bit about where this came from. Started out in in America, I understand. So maybe we just need to sort of paint a picture of of ACEs, where that research has come from, why it's important to education before we then move into talking about trauma-informed practice. No problem. Okay, so um, whistle-stop tour of, of the history of ACEs basically... There were two researchers in America doing big projects, completely separate, not not related to each other at all, um, Feliti and Andes. And one of them was looking at the impact of, I I think his focus was obesity, but the impact of adversity in early childhood on later obesity and health problems. And then the other was looking at mental health and the impact of adversity in childhood on mental health in later life. And then they kind of, um, I don't know how they met, I can't remember how they met, but they kind of came across each other's research and realised that they were looking at the same thing and kind of joined together. And they undertook the the first, what's now called ACEs study. There's now been ACEs studies all over the world in in, uh, most Western uh, countries. So the ACEs study basically it looked at, I think it, it was about 75,000 or 65,000 adult Americans. And it did a survey of their mental and physical health alongside their early childhood experiences and found incredibly clear links between the two. And, and not just like, oh, you know, oh, yeah, there's a little bit more of a likelihood that you might get this, that and the other if you've had these difficult childhood experiences. I mean, like, really clear data correlations between the number of adverse childhood experiences somebody has had with how many more times likely they are to develop things like, not just things like depression and alcohol and drug dependencies, but also things like heart disease, cancer, diabetes, you know, like actual physical health complaints, which prior to that study, really, we'd held in in really separate boxes. We'd like, we'd said, oh, well, these experiences are obviously impacting on people's well-being and mental health, and therefore we can 
totally understand that they'll impact on people's well-being and mental health. But we'd never really seen any strong evidence that it was directly correlated to physical health as well. And so that just, you know, took the the medical, social care, education, you know, the, the implications of those links go across the whole of society. And I think that's one of the things we'll probably keep coming back to all the way through this podcast, is that understanding ACEs and understanding the impact of trauma is not an education thing. This is not about something that we need to understand in education because we need to remedy it. This is a societal issue and this is something that can only be addressed wholly with changes across the whole of our society and we have a part to play in that we're one piece of that jigsaw puzzle as as educators but we're it's definitely not all you know in our camp and I suppose it just occurred to me actually a a little bit late in the day that we ought to have um, started off this episode with a bit of a trigger warning you know some of the Mm. things that we are going to be talking about in this episode are uncomfortable but they are the reality, unfortunately, um, of a lot of the young people that we work with, their parents, their carers, society, as you said, as a whole. So I think what we might need to know, and it's good that I've done that trigger warning, is what are we talking about when we're talking about these adverse childhood experiences that have got this this longer term, this awful impact on, on longer term health and well-being? What are we talking about? Because from my knowledge, and I remember we we had a a session on this, if you had a certain amount, because they did a big survey, didn't they, of these adults, and if you had a a certain number of them, it was about levels of toxicity in your body that sort of had this sort of negative... And and a little bit of knowledge is is a terrible thing, so put me right, Anne. Well, and, you know, I feel exactly the same in terms of the little bit of knowledge, because, I mean, I've I've done training on ACEs, I've done a trauma-informed diploma, you know, I've, I've studied it, it was part of my previous role. But even then, the neuroscience behind this is so huge that when you delve into this topic and you start reading around it, you can very quickly find yourself out of your depth. You can very quickly find yourself in, like, neuroscience speak, brain development speak, talking about different zones of the brain, nucleus accumbens and all that sort of stuff and and just go, ah, I don't understand, you know, and run away. Or certainly that's what I do. And yeah, absolutely. The thing with the thing with ACEs is the research shows that it's an accumulative effect in terms of the number of adverse experiences somebody has that lead to the likelihood of. Now, you've got to remember with all of this that this is just can lead to you know this is not if somebody has had adverse childhood experiences they are doomed to these you know much more negative outcomes it's not a given when you look at ACEs and trauma-informed you have to also alongside that look at the research on resilience and what are our protective factors because there are lots of people who've had significant adverse childhood experiences who haven't gone on to develop significant mental health issues or major physical health problems in later life because they've had some, you know, resilient protective factors, usually, um, we'll probably talk about this again later, but usually a consistent, emotionally available caregiver is one of the key key things that, that help children be resilient. But yeah, adverse childhood experiences, we're talking about I'm not going to remember them all, physical, emotional and sexual abuse, Mm -hmm. physical and emotional neglect, 
domestic violence, parental mental health, parental substance misuse, parental imprisonment, so like an absent parent, and parental separation. And then that they were the original study collection. Since that time, because there's been a number of iterations of the ACES studies, as I said, in, in many different countries, and there's been other, there's, people have made the case for other factors to be added as well, such as bereavement, poverty, um, homelessness, you know, that there are other strands of experience that could be classed as being in this in this bracket. So it's not it's not a definite finite, you know, number of items and that's all that counts. Significant discrimination is another one that could be added in there. There's lots of strands that that could be added into that. And it's as you say, it's it's about toxicity. It's about living with toxic stress. So trauma in and of itself is not the event. Trauma is our response to the event in abs in the absence of protective factors, people, relationships to help us cope with what's gone on. So it's not an absolute given that if these things happen, these will be your outcomes. You've got to take into account those things that balance it out. And you did say very clearly just before any of our student teachers or new teachers sort of run screaming from this, you know, we're not trying to fix this issue, but to be, I, I guess, informed by it, the, the name, I guess the clue's kind of in the name, trauma-informed. What do we actually mean then by being trauma-informed? Is it just knowing that or is there more, more to it than that? Well, I mean, there's different levels of being trauma-informed and I guess... Depending on somebody's interest, passion, it's like anything, isn't it? I mean, if, you, if we think about additional learning needs, you know, additional learning needs is and should be everybody's business, but everybody will vary in the level of interest they have in it. Some people will start out at the very early stages of their career being really passionate about additional learning needs. You know, I went into teaching already knowing I wanted to work with people with autism. That was already like my thing. So some people will go into teaching already passionate about it and so will make sure that they're informed and they understand and they, you know, have a real depth of knowledge. Others will go into teaching and then realise that they're really interested in additional learning needs and, and learn more about it and find it more. Others will go through their teaching career knowing as much as they need to get by in the classroom. It won't be a passion, it won't be a thing, it won't be something they seek out proactively. They'll do the training that schools have on as mandatory and they'll do put into place what they have to put into place and that will be as far as it goes. And it's the same for ACEs, you know, and trauma. Like, ideally, everybody would understand what we mean by these things, understand the, the impact that trauma and adverse childhood experiences can have on the brain and physical development of children and have an idea about the sorts of things that they can do in their classroom to help to mitigate some of that and put it into practice. But in reality, lots of teachers won't have that knowledge and, and, you know, and won't have those skills. I think I said waving my magic wand in the last podcast, but if I could wave my magic wand, I would make all practitioners understand what this means. You know, the, the statistics around adverse childhood experiences in Wales are 
really quite stark. The percentage of people in Wales from the original ACES survey in Wales that have four or more ACES was significantly higher than the American percentage for four or more ACES. So we really should be concerned about the experiences our children are having outside of school and what we can do to help support them in school. And as you were talking there, I was starting to think about data because we know that that is one thing, one sort of stream of information, knowledge that schools draw upon to inform their practice. And I I wondered what kind of data would a school get about ACEs? And would that dictate whether they became trauma-informed? You're shaking your head. So I'm just wondering, you know, should all schools have trauma-informed practice, a, a culture of that? You know, should should this be everybody's business? Or that are there certain types of school in certain areas without wanting to generalise? I'm just wondering, like, where does the school start with this? How do they know yeah, this is no, their business or not? <laughs> I think, so Public Health Wales started a campaign, I can't even remember how many years ago it was now. It might be about maybe about six or seven, but that's probably, that's a bit of a guesstimate. But when the ACEs stuff all started becoming really big news and came over to the UK and England did their study, Wales did their study, Public Health Wales pulled together a team to really invest in adverse childhood experiences training in Wales. And they funded for a number of years, they had a whole team that were funded to deliver ACEs training. So they trained trainers, which is the version I went to. So representatives from schools and local authorities across Wales went and and received the training to deliver the training. And then the expectation was that they would all deliver the training out into their schools and cascade that. So there was a real big push and drive to get the information about what are the statistics in Wales in general, statistics, and why should we be interested, why should we care and what can we do about it? And yeah, that was a huge push. And the health boards were all on board. We used to there was a there's a movie called, I don't know if you've seen it, called Resilience. Have you seen that? It might have been used in because I remember very, very clearly having that professional learning oh, here yeah, yeah. at Cardiff Met. And that might have been part I remember watching some very powerful video footage of it. So perhaps it yeah. was from that. Well, so it's like a full-length movie uh, called Resilience, and it's it kind of focuses on the work of N- Nadine Harris, Dr. Nadine Harris. So she was a pediatrician, Harvard uh, um, graduate pediatrician in America, and um, she worked in a community, and she set up a, in a, I think it was a really deprived part of San Francisco, I think the most deprived part of San Francisco, and they'd set up a, a family and child support like clinic and she was working from there really trying to impact on on all of the challenges and difficulties and then she came across that ACES paper that Feliti and Anders had had published Um, and that was I think in 2008 and she then started this big movement around ACES and she linked with them and it became like a government-led thing and and they did they introduced in their centres and their medical centres like um, 
a survey. So from the minute a woman was pregnant, basically the minute they got contact with, with a woman, whether or not she was, uh, you know, carrying the baby or she just had the baby or they were a toddler, teenager, whatever, they gave them a certain ACEs survey. They didn't ask them to indicate which ACEs. They just asked them to read the list and to indicate a number of how many ACEs they had experienced and how many, a- and if the child was born, how many ACEs they think they child had experienced and they had like a whole raft of like medics and social workers and they would do family visits and they would do therapy interventions and they do all this raft of work to try and like undo the toxic like you know implications through that big multi-agency cross-service approach that hasn't traveled funnily enough (laughs) (laughs) So the research travelled, but that model didn't travel. And um, obviously, for many reasons related to policy and funding. And so when it comes to our schools, they don't have any means of knowing how many children they have in their care that have experienced, you know, adverse conditions, experiences in their childhood. They don't have any way of knowing, it, nor would it be right to ask. Um, you know, it's incredibly personal information. But from the statistics, from the study of the adults in Wales, we know that I think it's just under half, I think it's about 47% or something, of people in Wales have experienced at least one. And then the four or more, which is when you go up into the realms of significant impacts later on in life, um, I think is something like 14%. So 14 in every 100 children, at least, because that's just from the survey who was willing to say you can imagine that there was likely people who responded to that survey who didn't feel able to be fully open. Maybe they haven't yet been fully open with themselves about some of the experiences they had when they were children. So at least 14 in every 100 children from the statistics we've got in Wales. So that does, and that's the significant end, that's the four or more. So that does tell us that this should be everybody's business and everybody should be invested in understanding what it means, understanding how it impacts, and more importantly, understanding what they can do about it. Thinking about our lovely listeners now, now some of them might be, we we flatter ourselves, there might be some quite high-powered people listening. You've got things like budgets and strategies and people that can tell what to do. I don't think anybody's got budgets at the moment. No, no, I I strike the budget a bit from the record, (laughs) but, you know, the other things. Um, Quite a lot of them are going to be new members of the profession, single teachers in single classrooms, and they're going to be saying, all right, I'm convinced. I get it. You know, this is this is a bad thing. This is having a bad outcome on my kids. It would be lovely if I could do something about it. However, I've got, you know, things to deliver and targets to meet and, and results to get or whatever it may be. So I suppose for that person who is in that quite limited context without a huge amount of power but they want to do something what can they do and what is the knock-on effect of doing it is this going to be just a thing I say just is this going to be a thing that is going to make happier healthier children or is it going to have academic outcomes 
What's the kind of story for that person at the Ooh, bottom of the heap? Happier, healthy children or academic <laughs> or, outcomes? <laughs> I know, but, you know, there will be people. There will be yeah, people kind of asking these questions. Well, yeah. I mean, first of all, we know that not only do these experiences and living with the impact of, of toxic stress, not only do they impact on mental health and physical health, but they also impact on education outcomes, attendance, behaviour problems, focus, all sorts of things that that filter into the school environment. So it, there's definitely motivation there from those who are outcome, you know, uh, focused. There's reason to invest. And then the other thing I would say, when you were saying about, because I, I, I totally agree with you in terms of lots of people will be thinking, well, I haven't got any power to change any of this in my one classroom with my um but actually when it comes to these children with these experiences in life actually that is all the power that is where the power sits with that one adult who is in a position to forge a relationship and make a difference and have you seen that you've got to have seen that video with um ian wright when he yeah see yeah I mean, they use that on the trauma-informed training because it's an example of a child who had had many, many difficult experiences and found school very challenging and uh, didn't feel very valued. And that one teacher gave him that time and that investment and made him feel listened to and, and you know, worthwhile. And he still, whatever, however old he was in that video, like 50 or whatever, was still carrying that huge emotional response with him everywhere because of what that one teacher had given him. So in terms of individual teachers, they do hold all the power when it comes to the response to ACEs because... The main thing that makes a difference for children who have had these very difficult life experiences are those relationships. It is having adults who, I mean, they, they use the, the, the phrase an emotionally available adult. And all we mean by that is somebody who is who genuinely cares about the child as a person not as a pupil in the classroom as a human being and takes the time to ask them how they're doing and listen to them and find out what's going on in their life and and greets them warmly each day you know um despite what might have happened yesterday if things had unraveled and they'd completely dysregulated and trashed a classroom that they still get a nice warm good morning really lovely to see you how are you doing today you know so those sorts of strategies, it's, it's really about creating an ethos in your classroom of like warmth and acceptance and care. And, and, you know, school is often, for a lot of children, the only stable thing that they have going on, especially, you know, if, if home life is really, really uh, difficult and fractious, if they've got parents with mental health issues or substance misuse or they're living in food poverty or, you know, whatever's going on at home, school often provides that that pocket of safety and stability. And if we can add to that and make it feel really caring and warm and make them feel cared for, 
then that's that's a huge step towards helping them to regulate, helping them to calm those stress hormones down that have been kicking off all the time in their day-to-day lives. So all of that really helps. It really adds to it. Yeah, it's got me reflecting now. We started to get into sort of the nitty-gritty of of what that practice Mm. looks like. I remember when we interviewed you for the episode on additional learning needs, something that you said quite powerfully was that really good pedagogy is like your first principles your your first this is not the right way to put it but sort of your first line of defense yeah in supporting making sure your practices is inclusive so what I want to know is that would you be able to tell the difference and I'm saying this with a few caveats because I don't we don't want just point atable things in in classrooms but would you be able to tell the difference if you spent the day in a classroom working or observing a practitioner who had gone through this trauma-informed professional learning versus somebody that hadn't, would you be able to sort of see the difference in practice and what would you see if so? It would depend on how much... So, for example, the trauma-informed schools which is one package there's there's lots of different this thrive there's you know there's all sorts of different packages about approaching children and young people who've experienced trauma or adverse uh, childhood experiences and they all have some threads of continuity and they all have some models that are specific to their approach and depending on how much someone was adhering to the training would depend on how clearly I would be able to spot if they'd done the training. So, for example, one of the things on the trauma-informed schools uh, training is the wine model. So I wonder, I imagine, I notice, and then empathy. Yeah. So it's a model for how we how we meet children when they're starting to dysregulate. And we meet them with curiosity and we meet them with nothing that's confrontational. So I wonder if that made you feel da-da-da-da-da. I noticed that you said that to such and such and I wondered if da-da-da. So it's coming at things from that kind of curiosity and always with empathy. Those sorts of phrases, if I saw somebody in practice saying, I wonder, I notice... I imagine I, I would be like, oh yeah, they've done the they've done the trauma training, but I think through all of the different packages, the clearest message to all is empathy, and I think if you went into a practitioner's classroom where there was real genuine connection with the pupils and real care and time was given to listen to them and people were being empathetic in, in their responses and in their listening, would I know if they were trauma-informed or would I just think they were an excellent practitioner who just got children and just understood the needs of children and young people? I think certainly it's probably a bit more obvious at a secondary level because at a primary level we kind of expect that and we've got a bit more time and space for that and we when we've got one class with us all of the time and we can really develop those rich relationships it's more challenging 
at a secondary level. And so I think it would be more obvious at a secondary level if somebody was prioritising taking those little pockets of time out to just have those little dialogues with, with students and in that sort of kind of open way, I think maybe it would be a little bit more obvious. I'm thinking about a new member of the profession now, perhaps hasn't uh, clocked up a lot of hours uh, in a school environment, perhaps quite inexperienced. They might be listening to this and they might have one of two reactions. They might be thinking, that sounds absolutely terrifying. I did not sign up for this. I don't want to get this close to my pupils. I just want to teach X, Y, Z. I mean, I think probably this this thing you were saying about secondary, you you could imagine that. I just want to teach... My subject. I don't want to, I, I can't cope with this. I'm terrified of it. At the other extreme, you might get a new member of the profession who's like, I'm all up for this, goes in and potentially crosses all sorts of lines and gets himself in a terrible state as well. You know, you could imagine through inexperience taking one or other of those kind of extreme routes into trouble. Do you have advice, guidelines, ways of kind of allaying that from happening? Is it too harsh to say use of common sense? <laughs> no. Um, no, I mean, and I, I totally understand where you're coming from. And there will inevitably be, as I said before, even when we think about additional learning needs, you know, same thing. There will be people going into the profession who are like, whoa, I don't know what I'm doing here. I feel out my depth, you know, with, with kids with additional needs. That bit, I mean, actually, the... They're both just as harmful, really, potentially. Yeah, that's um, why I didn't pick one. <laughs> that's mm, why I picked them both. Yeah, yeah. I think they, they both have as potentially harmful outcomes uh, as one another, really. I think with the kind of booling in and stepping over certain boundaries, I mean, you know, we expect that all practitioners going into the classroom have had like safeguarding, training, etc. They all know the sorts of conversations not to have and to have. You know, we're taught right from the start that we don't go in and ask a child for personal details. We don't, you know, have conversations with them with leading questions. Your job is not to find out what their adverse experiences are. Your job is not to sit down and dig in with them into what goes on when you go home at night and why are you so angry. That is not the role of the general classroom practitioner. That's somebody's role, often not provided in our current systems, but we won't necessarily go there. Your job is to be consistent, be their teacher, be their care, be consistent in your classroom with very similar to the ELN stuff with the structure and routines of your classroom with, like as I said before, the importance of, of warm greetings at transition points. So that's not just start and end of the day. This is particularly important in high school. That's leaving lessons and arriving at lessons. You know, that those transition points are just as important. Just making those environments as predictable and safe and caring as we can. That's your role as a classroom practitioner. I suppose we should also explore the flip side of that as well, isn't it? That they shouldn't be digging into what's going on in the kid's life in in great and unnecessary detail, but they also shouldn't necessarily be going in as a, look at my sob story. I've had a sob story too, and I'm going to make this my thing that we're going to kind of, you know, do this together. Yeah, absolutely (laughs) not. Yeah. Definitely not. 
So again, in the same way as the messages we're told when we do safeguarding training, we're, we're definitely not standing in a classroom with children or even on a one-on-one, which is probably when it's more tempting to do this, trying to show them that you empathise because you've had those experiences as well or you've had similar experiences, that we're not going there either. That's not emotionally available. That's not what we mean. (laughs) No, absolutely not. That's not going to help. You can absolutely give the messages that I really understand, you know, oh, that must have been... If if it if a young person's sharing something with you, I've, I understand that must have been really difficult, or that must have been really scary. You know, that, you know, I, I I imagine that was a really difficult time for you. You can really empathise and listen and be you know actively listen and be there, but yeah, we're we're not sharing our own life experiences. That doesn't help the child or young person. Um, yeah. That's not emotionally available. Yeah, I did wonder about that term emotionally available because I'm sure that in the in the training maybe there's a lot of sort of time given to defining the boundaries of that. But I also wondered about senior leadership in schools and what sort of broader support mechanisms there need to be to support staff. Because I can imagine, you know, it's all very well and good being emotionally available, but you might hear some really difficult things Um, and you can't it's about time as well gosh we'd love to be emotionally available (laughs) for a lot of time but we've only have so much time so what does a trauma-informed school look like then what kind of structures systems and support collaboration what needs to be in place to make that work yeah I think you're absolutely right I think you know we can't we can't talk about aces and the implications of ACEs without acknowledging that the research, the stats around ACEs are based on our adult population. They're based on our workforces. Yeah. In the resilience movie, when you see, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's Andes or Folletti, but one of the two original researchers is hosting these big events with different professional groups. And part of what they do in the event is they get them all to fill in the survey and uh, and then they stick their stats up on the screen and actually the social care and education professionals social care particularly but they were the ones with the highest you know of most of the professional groups that they'd spoken to so yeah we have to we have we have to understand that all of these things we're talking about are just as relevant to our workforce as they are to our children and we can't suggest that we're a trauma-informed school if actually, from from a working perspective, it's a really toxic environment and staff feel really overworked and under huge pressure and feel really powerless and, you know, all of these things that make those very difficult work environments. So there are, like, frameworks. So there's um, acehubwales.com has, has got... They call it trace-informed, so trauma and ACEs-informed. So they call it trace-informed, but they've got like a framework for organisations, not school-specific. Trauma-informed schools has got a school-specific one. I think Thrive have probably got a school a school one. The public health Wales training that got rolled out came with a school's framework. So there are frameworks out there that have cons- considered what does it mean to be a trauma-informed school? 
And there's lots of examples of trauma-informed schools out there who've, you know, who've already gone through the training programme and they've completed, you know, these audits and they've changed practice. Um, I think on the on the ACES Hub website, there's a little film, I think it's Millbank in Cardiff, who were a trauma-informed school and they've got the children talking on there about what that means on a day-to-day basis for them and what that looks like in the school. So it's it's about shifting and changing culture in terms of in the staff team also in their relationships with parents and the openness and transparency with their parents and then the day-to-day kind of approaches with the children and it's things like the importance of every day a fresh start I keep coming back to that but it is massively significant for for children with um, trauma calm spaces in the school you know places children can go to 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 just kind of calm down and when they're starting to dysregulate that key person so i think in millbank each child gets to choose their adult in the school that they will go to if they need to speak to somebody and and that's you know a given within the school so it's it's having kind of systems in place uh, where the staff feel supported and the children feel supported. And possibly rewriting policy. I'm just thinking about some behaviour policies that might be completely at odds with this kind of approach. And so maybe a lot of reworking of those policies to make it work. Yeah, absolutely. And a a shift in thinking really as well, because especially around the challenging behaviour, we've still got some quite... um, ingrained old school thinking I'm saying all the wrong things I shouldn't be saying this but we've got some like quite old-fashioned traditional thinking still out there in schools about um, behavior and what we can't let them get away with and we can't let them win and they can't get their own way and you know we can't just let it go they shouldn't just be getting away with these things these sorts of things and it is really outdated but it still exists amongst teachers and support staff so there's a culture shift as well in you know there was a primary school in Cardiff probably about five years ago who where the head teacher was it was in quite a deprived part of Cardiff and the head teacher decided that he was going to completely flip the school's approach uh, to behavior to be a trauma informed and he you know every member of staff had to be on board with things like the fresh start, the meet and greet, the, you know, being available for children when they came and they needed to speak to someone and all of those things. And it, it took quite a bit of work to to make that culture shift um, because there are still a lot of people who perceive the, the challenging behaviours as a choice. And as we're kind of heading towards a conclusion to this discussion, You've hinted at something, you know, during this discussion. I'm thinking, let's just go there. Let's just ask this question, see where this one lands. You've made the point very strongly that there is a big problem here. I mean, I was blown away by the fact that Wales had significantly worse statistics for this stuff than the US. I mean, that's quite amazing. You've made a really good argument for doing this in schools, that this is going to do good stuff for kids. I feel like there's a sort of elephant in the room, which I guess I could I could articulate by asking the question, 
beyond the sort of emotional availability, the, the doing a good thing by the kids thing, to what extent are we missing a whole other piece of the puzzle, which is more specialists, more specialist care, perhaps some of them being in schools, that it's not just the teachers papering over perhaps some investment-related cracks. Go for it. <laughs> Talk about putting me on the spot. Well, look, it's the same as the poverty impact on outcomes in Wales, isn't it? You know, we know that in the last 20 years, we've done nothing to improve the outcomes of you know, our children living in poverty in Wales. And we've got the most deeply ingrained intergenerational poverty in the UK. And the outcomes for those children are starkly lower than than the rest of the population. And what's the answer to that? Does that lie in classroom practice? Does that lie in relationships? You know, it's, it's a much bigger societal problem and so is this on so many levels because I mean if you look at for example it'd be really interesting I mean we won't know it for a number of years but the children who are children now who were children through COVID to do an ACES survey on them in 10 you know, 15 years time, because we know that during COVID, things like abuse, domestic violence, alcohol and substance misuse, mental health, parental separation, all of these things skyrocketed. They were already incredibly high, but they went up to another level during COVID. The implications of that on our children, we're seeing it coming through in the early years, particularly, you know, the children coming through the early years at the moment are incredibly complex, many of them. And so there's so many strands linking into all of these elements. I mean, some people would say poverty is at the heart of many of those issues, not all you know, the, the adverse childhood experiences don't just happen in deprived areas. Children are abused in wealthy families, you know, as well. It, it absolutely, you know, but things like living in poverty, substance misuse, etc. Those those figures tend to be higher where there's poverty, you know, interrelated. But it just. It, it, there's so many strands. I mean, it almost feels like an impossible mountain to climb. I would say that the work that's started at the moment in Wales around community-focused schools links really closely to this because that's a recognition that all of these services and strands involved in children's lives and including, like, parent education opportunities and things like that, that, you know, every, all of this feeds into the well-being and the achievement of the children. And so actually we should bring it all together. And that's one road to go down, I think, that has real potential. But in order for that to be impactful, there has to be a complete shift in the way that all of these service areas are operating and are funded. Because at the moment... We just haven't got the services set up in that way. If you said, actually, we need we need a psychiatrist or a, a psychiatric nurse from CAMS, 
based in every high school across Wales, the NHS would say, we don't have the funds for that. We don't, we, uh, nor do we have the clinicians. They can't get people in post, but that's another matter. But, you know, there's there's lots of services that actually, if we were to fully move to that community-focused schools model, which I think could go a huge way to supporting communities, you know, out of these circumstances, it would need a complete shift in funding mechanisms and that i think might have to be a whole other episode all by itself but uh, <laughs> thank you for indulging me with that horrible question uh, it's it's hard isn't it it's very hard yeah. okay let's move on to uh, some short slots so would you like to give us your something interesting or your something to try first um give you a choice since i asked you a nasty question a minute ago <laughs> <laughs> Let's do a something to try because I make it related. I mentioned it earlier in the podcast and I think it's a really useful strategy even for, and I say even for, but like secondary teachers because I mean as in it's a completely different type of environment, isn't it? But I've worked with secondary teachers who've used the wine model and have found it really impactful. I've I've known secondary and primary practitioners who have actually printed the little acronym on a on a card and stuck it on the back of their staff badge so that when they're faced with a situation where somebody might be a little bit um you know they're like oh yeah they're, they're the phrases I've got to use again I wonder if you know oh I imagine that was really quite but I would definitely say that the the you know I wonder I imagine I know us and approaching children with empathy is a is a really useful strategy. The other thing I would say is uh, there's uh, an approach in the trauma-informed training called affect attunement. And it's the opposite of what we instinctively do. So when somebody is angry or upset, we try to be really super calm. Yeah. Right. Now I can see that you're very upset. And actually, particularly with older learners, all that does is irritate them more and exacerbate the situation. So one of the things they talk about in trauma-informed training is actually meeting the emotion of the learner, meeting it appropriately, not as in raging with them, but, you know, if they're, like, really cross about something, I can see that you're really cross. I understand, you know, I can understand why that would make you really angry. You know, I wonder if we could do such and such to see how, but you're meeting them to show them that you really empathise with the feelings they're having and you're not belittling their feelings. Mm. And again, I've I've, I've had um, anecdotal reports, particularly from secondary uh, teachers, uh, that, that have found that really impactful and that it kind of almost takes the wind out of the student's sails because mm. they're almost a bit kind of taken aback with... Oh, give us the name for that again. Affect attunement. Mm. God, that's a word I've never heard before. Mm. <laughs> Very nice. Okay. Very interesting. Wine <laughs> and affect attunement. <laughs> they are right. things. <laughs> and you gave us something really interesting that I've started listening to last time. So what's it this time? Something interesting. Do you know, it's so funny because I did this last time, didn't I? I came in with no idea. I'd completely forgotten about the two questions. And I did the same this morning. So it's, uh, <laughs> when you said before, I was like, oh, God, I think it's something interesting. I'm currently halfway through a book called Ultra Processed People. 
Oh, Have you yes. heard of it? It's all over the place, Have isn't you it? Have read it? I haven't read it, no, but I've yeah, read about it. So my sister-in-law brought it down and she was like, I think you'll really enjoy this book. And I was like, all right, okay. I'm halfway through it. It's absolutely fascinating. I didn't know it was all over the place. I'm not very good on, you know, like... I don't keep up to date with, like, the news or, like, articles. I'm, fair, I'm rubbish with stuff. I'm a little kind of world. <laughs> I've usually got, like, Harry Potter on an audio like, book or something. Um, but, yeah, so I'm reading this, Ultra Process People. It's really, really fascinating. The way he presents, uh, presents it is fantastic. He talks through all the research. He goes right back in time in history. And it's basically uh, highlighting the fact that, like, obesity, not just obesity, but obesity and lots of other health issues that we're experiencing. And if you think about the stats around like cancer now, is it like one in two of us or something we've gone up to? But, you know, uh, things like cancer, diabetes, heart disease, all of that, that actually the, the factor that's impacting on that is the level, the number of processed ingredients in our food, not how much food or how lazy we are or anything like that. It's about the processedness of what we're eating, um, which is really fascinating. And w- one of the things with Grimm, you see this thing called, it's a gower gum or xanthan gum, one of the gums that I've known for ages you have to avoid. So I often look for it and go, oh, not having that. But I didn't know why. I just, someone had said, avoid it because they're not very nice. It explains in this book when they grow bacteria in a petri dish, the like slime and gunk that the bacteria creates to stick to stuff, they extract that gunk off the bacteria and put it into the food to thicken it. Nice. Nice. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So it, the books follow like interesting interesting random facts like that but yeah I'm halfway through I'm enjoying it Tell about the rest of the episode but that uh, that yeah. should have come with the trigger it's warning bomb, yeah, it's grim isn't it this, yeah, this, it is uh, grim this episode discusses trauma and bacteria slime <laughs> <laughs> void stick to wine <laughs> Indeed. The real Indeed. stuff. <laughs> oh, Dr. Anne Hodgson, you are as ever a legend. Thank you so much no for coming in again and giving us another classic episode. And we will be back in your ears in two weeks' time. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma O'Doha and Tom Breeze. The special guest this episode was Dr Anne Hodgson from here at Cardiff Met and thanks to Anne for taking part. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blandford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. The studio manager is Adrian Raps. We're on X at Talk Teaching Pod if you want to come and say hello to us. We'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching. 